name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Once a month, I have a practice of going to meet uh, with a spiritual director at a retreat center that's nestled in along a remote edge of Lake Dallas. I spend about an hour with him talking about my life, uh, my ministry, and talking about ways that I can further serve the Lord and draw near to him in all aspects. It's usually a really rich time, so I spend about a half day in silent retreat thereafter, praying and puzzling out all those conversations. One of my favorite spots um, is this patio that overlooks the lake, and I often sit there uh, for quite some time. And a couple months ago, I was really drawn to this image. I, I took a photo of it. It's nothing of great significance. It was two towering oak trees in the background, followed by, in this flower bed, something that probably their landscaping crew had just cut flush with the ground. It was a stump. But as the months had gone by, two shoots had shot up with all these little saplings on either side. And I was just reflecting on um, things I've read, you know, over the years about gardening and all these sorts of things, just the, the miraculous way in which God creates plants where that one taproot, when rightly anchored, can sustain a plant even when things above the surface change, even when the plant literally is cut down, as long as the root is rightly established, it can continue to bring nourishment and water and often bring the plant back several times over. We've seen it in our own gardens. You've seen it out here uh, with our little plants from that freeze a few years ago, and you probably see it um, all the time. But it's a wonderful image to reflect on, um, especially in light of this imagery from Isaiah that we get this morning. So I'd like for us to spend a little time in Isaiah 11 thinking about this theme, this theme of being rooted in God's restorative work and some lessons that arise from it. As we do so, we'll look at these dual themes uh, that are found in this prophecy. So as you open to Isaiah 11, either in your Bible or you follow along on the screens, let me give you a little bit of context. Isaiah, as you know, is one of the major prophets, major in the sense that his prophecy covers many decades and spans all sorts of things that happen in the life of Israel. This first chunk, which we'll get in Isaiah 11, um, comes at around, say, 700 B.C. when the Assyrians are on the doorstep of Israel. Um, there's not a lot of hope at that point. Uh, they see a lot of problems that are on their door, and what's about to transpire is because of their choice to look for security like the nations of the world, even in the nations of the world around them, ironically forfeiting the only real true sense of security they have in their relationship with God. And so the Assyrians are on their doorstep. It's not yet happened, but we know historically the Assyrians wiped them out um, in, in coming years. And the promise right before that happens is on the lips of Isaiah to tell them that even when this comes to pass, there's hope, even when at the end of chapter 10, as they're cut down, God will bring forth a king and will also preserve a remnant of his people as part of that messianic kingdom to reestablish them not for their own sake, not just for them, but to reestablish them for their purposes 
in which they were chosen to begin with, namely that they would be a light unto the nations that in their relationship to God and their life and order to God as a people, that they would draw these nations that they're chasing after actually back to God, the one true God themselves. And so with this backdrop, we pick up in Isaiah 11 verse 1, where there's this reminder that will we'll be seated deep in their hearts before all this trial and tribulation comes. This promise that God will bring forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, you remember, is the father of who? David, right? Okay, so David, just testing your knowledge there, giving it out there. You're awake. I heard a few. So David therein is of that line. God made this promise to David, remember? that there would always be a king to serve on that throne. And if we know one thing, God's promises when he makes them always last and never change. But this root that shall come forth and bear fruit shall be unlike the kings they've seen of old. Um, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him in these threefold skills that they're given. This king is given to rightly reign and rule. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, and a knowledge and fear of the Lord. Now, the reason Israel's in the position they're in right now, as you may recall, is because all of the kings that those who heard this prophecy at that time would recall had done everything opposite of that. Rather than letting the spirit uh, of wisdom and understanding that comes from the Lord abide and seeking that wisdom, they sought the wisdom and counsel of those around them. They chased after um, counsel and might in other ways. They did not have a fear of the Lord. In fact, that fear of the Lord phrase at the end of uh, verse 2 there should call to mind the greatest king they ever had, at least to memory today, which was Solomon, who in Proverbs opens up that book with the, the, the understanding of knowledge is a knowledge of fear of the Lord, a reverence of the Lord. So um, in their minds, all of the recent memories of kings had, had departed from that from Hezekiah's weakness to Manasseh's shame um, to even Ahaz, who reigns right now, and his wickedness. And that's just in the southern kingdom. That doesn't even include Israel to the north. So in their minds, they're reminded that, sadly, when the king does not rule rightly, the people are not rightly ordered, and then everything is out of order as well. And so as we continue just briefly with a little bit of context in 3, 4, and 5, um, there's this reminder that um, this delight, if the king delights in the Lord, um, everything is rightly ordered. He doesn't show favoritism to the weak or to the strong, as the law would permit. He shows equity to the meek of the earth, that his judgments go forth and rightly order things, rebuking the wicked, ordering creation around them. And then in verse 5, in a phrase that we see Paul pulls forward in that wonderful image we know of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, this would be a righteousness that is clothed the king in better arrayal than any fine vestments or things that could ever adorn him. So with this background, they're being reminded that this is where they need to return. Israel has a purpose. They've missed their purpose. They've kind of forfeited their purpose they're about to see the judgment of that consequence as the kings had departed from their created purpose to lead the people themselves. And so um, rather than chasing the nations, they should lead the nations. They should lead the nations in the way in which they ordered their lives 
And so this reminder is that God himself will reestablish what the kings through subsequent generations had laid by the wayside. Now, what does this have to do with us? Um, I think there's a wonderful reminder here for us. First, remember these words are 250 years prior to ever coming to pass. We have hindsight. We can look at those on Advent 2 and go, oh, yes, that, that king we know is Jesus. And so we should. So we should associate there's the right root. There's the right um, branch of righteousness that comes forth. But we should be reminded as well that we're in a similar place as those who heard. While we ourselves celebrate Jesus' fulfillment of these words coming into the world in a few weeks at Christmas, we also are reminded that we are also in a season of waiting too. Jesus enters into the world and through living and working and ultimately dying upon the cross for our sake, he inaugurates this kingdom that we're told about, but it's not yet fully established. And thus, in the interim in which we wait, we need these reminders just as the people did. Maybe it's another 250 years before Jesus returns, or maybe it's another 250 minutes. I hope it's the latter and not the former. <coughs> but whatever the case is, we too need this reminder that as we pass through life, we too are to remember our created purpose, that the church has a purpose and each individual member therein, that not just passing the time until Jesus returns, but in the common ordering of our lives, the choices we make and what we choose to follow, where we go for seeking counsel and might, either the king of kings or, or all of these other places that we rightly as well are called to reflect on our purpose. And as we prepare in this season and all the busyness thereof, it's worth hitting pause and thinking about that. What is our purpose? We're called as the church to draw the world back to God himself by proclaiming Christ Jesus, not just in word, but in deed, in the way in which we lead our lives. Now, to keep us oriented toward that end and to turn to a few practicalities in a moment, let's first look at this middle section. It's this glorious vision in verses 6, 7, and 8 that Isaiah lays forth that has come to pass, as many prophecies do, in part but not in whole. This image of creation rightly ordered. In part, what this means is when the king rightly reigns and rules, those even of the lowest decree, degree um, will also find all of the benefits of his reign. That even those in the, the meagerest of circumstances, maybe who have um, simple tents over their heads, whose floors are, are dirt, whose children play over the, the dens of, of uh, adders and, and um, snakes, would not find any sort of harm. That this king's right reign and rule would establish that for them. But furthermore, what's not yet fulfilled is, is the lion laying down with the lamb and all of these things. So in part, um, what we see fulfilled is the king rightly reigning and ruling will establish that from lowest degree to highest, keeping the, the wolves off their doorstep of the Assyrians and other powers. But more importantly, um, what we know and what we catch glimpses of in Jesus' own life and ministry is when the author of creation itself steps into creation, he can reestablish and rightly order all these things that are out of place. 
speaking the, the winds to cease and the waves to die down. Um, Reimagining these images that we just take as part of the normal way of life between prey and, and um, creatures that, that feed on the grass, all these sorts of things, that he himself will reestablish and reorder everything as we know it. And it's worth dwelling on because it's so glorious that if we are reminded of these things, that in the midst of life and in the midst of a season where we look for hope, it's the bigger things that keep us oriented. We remain rooted by remaining oriented on something far grander than just the things that we get in our inbox and our ads and, and the, the joys that we get in glimpses of family members. We don't see that often. Um, and gifts we give, all those are great. But in a sense, Scripture says, that's just a glimpse. Look way bigger. God's zooming out to say, I'm going to do an even bigger and greater thing, which began with Jesus stepping into the world. We catch these glimpses, but it will come to pass in full. And so our purpose is not just to remember these things, but to remain oriented. That's why um, we live differently. We orient our lives differently. And we order our days differently. Now, I'm not going to get into this time of year as to whether or not you should have your tree up till next week or not, or lights or not. That's obscure. But the point is that we should take time to be in God's Word. You should take time to be in worship regularly. You should take time to serve and love the Lord in all of those aspects. And I'd say that most of us, if we spent more than two minutes in and around the church, know that it's much harder to do that. Why is that? I can't speak for you. I can speak for myself. I can say I think sometimes we think um, the, the, the goal. No, don't translate into Arabic. Um, <laughs> if um, you know the goal is to learn Arabic, which is not one of mine, maybe it could be. Um, then you know we we have to make the time. And so I have these big goals in walking with the Lord that I want to do, and I often think there has to be the season to get there to see that come to pass. So one of my life goals I've shared over the years um, comes from a great leader who's gone to glory by the name of John Stott. John Stott had a pattern of ministry that's one that hopefully before I pass my life, I'll, I'll somehow just get the cusp of. And um, he spends or he spent when he was living uh, an hour a day with the Lord, a day a week with the Lord, a week, a month with the Lord, and a month, a year with the Lord totally in, in times of study and prayer and set apart only for that purpose. So I've, I've talked to my mentors over the years. Um, it takes a village for me if you're figuring this out. Um, I have spiritual directors, coaches, all these things, right? We all need to be spurred on. And I was telling one of them, and he said, you know, that sounds great, Andrew, but um, when will that season ever come when the kids' activities are less busy, when the church is at a place where you think you can carve out that time, when um, the activities of those in, uh, in and around your life are, are calm enough that you can take on that discipline? And I said, well, that's a good question. And he said, I'll answer it. It's not ever going to happen. So <laughs> you'll never get there. And he said, so the question for you is, what steps can you take now that are manageable? Don't just be aspirational in your values, but take small steps. Don't wait till the perfect time turns about. So the reason I open with that image is I've not yet gotten to a week a month in silence and solitude, but I got a half day. That was something that I was able to work towards this year. It took a lot of work, but um, that was something that I knew I needed to do for my own soul's health. So what is it for you? In this season, maybe just reflect on that. 
What do you need to do to carve that out? Maybe you have a goal of, I'm going to be the person that's in the church every single Sunday. Well, if you're not there yet, go to twice a month. If you want to be the person that's in every Bible study, then, you know, the great thing is we've moved Bible studies that are self-contained every week. So pop in when you can. Make the manageable steps to get where you want to be with the Lord. If you wait till the season when kids are grown or, or activities are done or travel schedules cease or this or that, we'll always find excuses. But if we need to remain oriented, we've got to take the concrete steps, even as seemingly simple as they may be, to get there. And so to keep us oriented toward that end and to wrap up just very briefly, um, it's interesting that this passage um, reminds us where it begins, where it ends, namely back with the root of Jesse, where this knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth. And it doesn't always look like we think it will. And that's a wonderful thing for us to dwell on as well. In that day, when it comes to pass, it will stand as a signal for the people, the nations will inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. So even those who walked most closely with the Lord didn't fully get that. I mean, you heard that in the gospel um, from John the Baptist. He thinks it's going to be another winnowing. And it will be, but not yet. Jesus came first to seek and save the lost, and then that day will come, right? Um, and so they looked for this king to be reestablished. They're looking for a king on a throne with a crown. They're not looking for a king on a cross with a crown of thorns. They're not looking for one who will be like Solomon that they can come and inquire from, but rather the one who so uh, truly exudes truth that even the rulers of this earth standing before him, such as Pilate, ask him, well, what is truth? Um, that is a different pivot for us to reflect on, that as we are oriented with the Lord, it may always be um, different than what we think, because often God's plans are often far greater and, and far more perfect than we can imagine. So I think um, what we reflect on, and perhaps just a final point to consider, is that as we remain oriented, as we look at this passage, let us not forget God's promises. His promises always come to pass, but not always in the way that we think they might. And so rather than looking for all the details, the signs and signals, and all those things that so many of old did, might we do the harder work, the more diligent work of day after day, rising when we can put two feet on the ground to offer ourselves to the Lord, to find ways to draw nearer to him, to find ways to love him more fully in service, and that in so doing, by his grace, we might draw others to come to find the same. That is what Advent reminds us. He is coming. We should be ready, and might we take the steps to glorify him in our lives so others might come to find the same. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.